Hello and welcome to the Opinion Podcast. I'm Matt Shorty, the new host and new editor of Red Box. On the panel this week, we're joined by Times columnist Hugo Rifkin, lead writer Oliver Cam and political correspondent Lucy Fisher. The Tories are sleepwalking into disaster on the EU. For David Cameron, with ministers freely campaigning on both sides, if he loses, he loses, and if he wins, he still loses. Cameron has asked his government to remain civil on Europe, which is the thing no Conservative has ever been before. And what happens after the vote to those on the losing side? Will they really still have a future? The transformation of Labour from a party of government to an irrelevant sect continues apace. The lack of respect, let alone support, for Jeremy Corbyn among Labour MPs is palpable. But still worse is the incredibility of the leadership's views. On economic policy and defence, Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell are far out of line with the position of the party, both historically and in its current stance. Electoral retribution is guaranteed and extinction is conceivable. Moderate MPs have no serious option but to fight now rather than wait for more propitious times, which will not come. A swathe of pro-free speech groups have sprung up on campuses across the UK to combat the growing censoriousness of British universities, it emerged this week. About time too, so-called safe spaces and no platform bans on speakers are threatening the very enlightenment values upon which universities are based. Liberty, reason, rigour and tolerance. The dogmatism of a humourless and attention-seeking minority of students who want to bar the discussion of controversial ideas is an embarrassment and should be challenged, not just ignored. OK, so they're, they're all quite uh, gloomy, downbeat predictions for the future there. But we'll, we'll start with you, uh, Hugo, and your, your prediction that, that whatever happens in the EU referendum, it's not great news for the Tory party. I don't see how they can hold it together. It seems like, I mean, the, the whole point of this referendum is to hold the Tories together. And actually, Camden's, uh, Cam, Cameron's strategy has been to sort of push it further and further and further into the future, into the long grass, as they say. He's now d- knee-deep in the long yeah. grass, looking for his referendum, which he's kicked there and needs to pick up again. I mean, he had said... That there was this fight about whether ministers were going to be able to campaign freely. First he said they were. Now he's just said that actually only only ministers with long-standing and sincerely held views are going to be allowed to dissent, dissent from, from, the, from whatever the party line will be. How on earth that works, whether somebody speaks out and he says, hold on, your, your views on this are recent, I'm not having that. I think they're going to have to come forward with sort of cuttings of where they've said well, things it, in the past. <laughs> you know, as long as you've got 12, you're allowed out. Ex- or... ex- ex- exactly. And just the, the, whole, the whole process of how any of this functions. Look, he's got his renegotiation, which he's doing. The idea that after his renegotiation, somebody who is a member of his government can in a non-damaging way disagree with him. What are they going to say? Are they going to say, I thought this was all along, but I pretended. Are they going to say, well, we could have renegotiated, but my Prime Minister, who I still wish to serve as Justice Secretary, didn't do it for, didn't do it well enough, so I'm campaigning against him, but I still support him as Prime Minister. How on earth does it work? The only answer being, it, it just doesn't. It, it's a nonsense. His model, the Prime Minister's model, is clearly Harold Wilson's decision to go to the country for a referendum in 1975, in which Cabinet Ministers were able to campaign on either side. The process in that case was to solidify the Labour front bench against the very few uh, members of it who were on the outside, primarily Michael Foote, Tony Benn and uh, Peter Shaw. Um, There was a famous 
panorama debate between Roy Jenkins and Tony Benn, in which Benn was in which Benn came came out very much the worse. In the case of the Conservative front bench, I agree with Hugo that um, it's a nonsense. It's not going to work. And the one thing that the Prime Minister has got going for him is that it's actually worse for the Labour Party, which is... <laughs> everything's a, always worse for the Everything's Party. always worse uh, <laughs> w- w- for the Labour Party because it, uh, it, it, it clearly isn't a, a credible force for opposition at the moment. But at least, at least they have the practice of all disagreeing with each other, everyone thinking they're all talking nonsense. It's, it's a new thing for Tories. But I think, actually, I mean, Hillary Benn's rousing speech uh, in favour of airstrikes on Syria, flatly, you know, outright contradicting Jeremy Corbyn, is probably the biggest lesson Cameron's had in formulating yeah. this. You know, he can't allow members of his government to stand there at the dispatch box, outright building a case against him, undermining his negotiation. To but, me, that, that makes sense. But there's, that's there's actually no an argument in favour of keeping collective responsibility. I think that yeah, any yeah. anyone watching it from the outside will find it completely baffling that on all other areas of policy, whether it's the NHS or schools or prisons or the environment, everybody toes the line. And yet on this massive question of whether or not we stay in Europe, people... I don't understand how Chris Gwedding well, that, thinks he wants to stay in a cabinet where the Prime Minister disagrees with him on such a fundamental issue. It's what they're for. They're, I mean, the Tories, it's what, it's what they do for fun, is they bicker about the EU. You know, it's, it's a sort of it's, it's a, a, a sort of essential... Comp- if you cut, cut deep into a Tory, you'll find their position on the EU, like, right next to their heart. And, um, and so the idea that, I mean, if they don't, if they don't resign... It's ridiculous. They've been camp- half of some of them have been campaigning for this referendum all their lives. Uh, if they do resign, it's still ridiculous. It is ridiculous, but it's a party management issue, and it's damaged the Tories very severely. It did damage the Tories very severely in the 1990s, right through and including the general election campaign, when one frontbencher after another um, declared uh, against European integration in any circumstances. Uh, and this is a nonsense now. It's, it's. Uh, I, I agree with Lord Heseltine. It's, it's um, just absurd. The idea that you can be a member of the government and um, uh, and campaign against it on uh, on the issue of renegotiation. But they'll come through it because the the opposition is so feeble. You know, I, I'd also say that you know, maybe a this is intended to bounce people into <laughs> resigning. And, and, and that might be uh, a way for those who feel strongly about out to go and, and be more vocal. But interestingly to me, I've been really surprised by the number of new, I think there are about sort of 70, uh, 74, 75 new Tory MPs elected this May, uh, last May now, who uh, don't seem to think have particularly strong positions on the EU. Mm. To my mind, it seems an older generation of Tory for whom this is such an entrenched, visceral issue. Lots of new MPs sort of say, I'm not sort of massively bothered either mm. way. Yeah. Probably we'll stay with the, you know, with the government with... David Cameron to avoid um, ending my career early, yeah. but um, I think I think that's an interesting point as well. The Conservatives have historically been the pro-European party. They've they've been at the cutting edge of European integration, Britain's integration into Europe at, at every stage. But it's interesting. I think I suspect that your view of Tory MPs is much where the public are. It's a bit like issues yes, like fox hunting. There are two groups on either side who are very very noisy, and there are a load of people in the middle who carry on with their lives without thinking about it a huge amount, and they'll end up making a decision when we get much closer to the. To the referendum. Absolutely, and I wonder what the turnout um, in the poll will be. I don't think it is uh, an issue that excites many members of the public. For, I mean, for, for the Tories, though, it, it won't end. I mean, there was this no. great phrase coined you know, during the, the Scottish referendum, the, the never-endum, mm. you know, that goes on. This will be a never-endum. It, it is a never-endum. If, if whoever wins, most likely the inside will win. It, all it is is a sort of, for the other side, it's a setback. You begin again. You, have, you will have these people who think, well, if I don't resign now, do I need to, do I need to stay quiet on this forever? 
you know, like forever? Can I can I can I stop then? Can, do I have to stop campaigning for another referendum? Do I have to stop being a Eurosceptic because I didn't resign my my post in fisheries? I mean, it's some <laughs> I don't know. It's a mess. Then it's interesting the people who who view their position in fisheries as more important than their long held, yeah, passionate ideological opinion about Europe. The ones that I, I genuinely don't understand why somebody would want to stay in a government where the prime minister is arguing the exact opposite of them in such a big yeah for well, them I mean, is such a big decision. But I mean, it, it kind of um, the kind of the, the parochial nature of our politics and things like this always does slightly bother me. It's like this great debate we're having at the moment about whether Cameron will will Cameron have to go if we leave the EU. It's like, who cares? I mean, if we've left the EU, yeah. you know, we, we what a mess that's going to be. We had the same, you know? was the same conversation uh, before the Scottish referendum. Yeah. And the idea that what Cameron did or didn't do the following morning was, was going to be in important. the top ten of stories if, yeah. we had voted to leave, if Scotland had voted to leave. Yeah, he'd have struggled to get on the front page. Quite, in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In that uh, eventuality, least of our problems. Yeah, Oliver. Now you, um, now we've dealt with the Tories' misery. Let's let's move on and deal with Labour's. There have been lots of uh, things written which are predicting the worst for Labour. But I don't think anything quite as strong as what is as uh, your pitch this morning. Labour has had disasters before. Labour's had disasters in my adult lifetime. In 1983, which was the first general election I voted in, in which I did actually vote Labour even under Michael Foot, the party got hammered, but it retained more than 200 seats in the House of Commons because of the strength of its regional redoubts. Those have gone now. It hasn't got Scotland. It's got one Member of Parliament in Scotland. Its leadership is unlike any other that has held uh, the post, uh, at least since George Stansbury in the 1930s. It's way out of line with the historical traditions of the Labour Party on such crucial issues as collective security, the nuclear deterrent and economic policy. And there is nothing fixed in political history that means that a party that has abandoned where its voters are will necessarily be a a permanent feature of the landscape. The model that, or the precedent that I can think of is the French left in the early 1980s. The socialists won the presidency. President Mitterrand was elected. The communists that had been, at one point, the largest single party in the Fourth Republic, um, did catastrophically uh, got 15% of the vote and never recovered. It's now at about 4% of the vote. And that seems to me awful augury for the Labour Party. It's abandoned its traditions. It's abandoned its voters. Its leadership is neither respected nor, nor trusted by the Parliamentary Party. And it could get very, very bad indeed. I would think Twenty uh, percent is 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 about the top that I could expect them to get in the general election. It's catastrophic. Lucy, you've argued in the past that things might not be all bad for uh, for Labour under Jeremy Corbyn. What's your current view of the landscape? Well, what I'm quite excited to see is, is the next sort of frontier of battle. So at the moment, the focus has been um, entirely on defence, trident renewal, and um, foreign policy, Syria whether there should be drone strikes authorised against jihadists uh, and that sort of thing. I really want to see the battle come to the domestic sphere because um, a big argument of the Corbynistas, we saw Richard Bergen, the shadow city ministers, he's been out in the airwaves this week saying, yes, OK, there's, there's a problem with Trident, but we all agree, all us MPs and peers and Labour members agree on 99% of things. Um, and that simply isn't the case. And I want to see the argument brought forth about um, economics. We've seen in recent days... Jeremy Corbyn suggesting local income tax, this sort of, you know, this idea that town hall chief should be handed um, tax raising powers, um, the idea of kind of abolishing council tax altogether, land value tax. Um, 
some some really kind of quite radical left wing ideas. Although, I, mean, I think that's an old Lib Dem policy as well. Well, it? well, it is <laughs> um, the Greens yeah. and so forth. Yeah, exactly. And there's, yeah, yeah. there's different kind of iteration, iterations of, of how it would work. But um, my point being that there's there's lots of kind of radical new ideas coming in. Um, we yet to kind of hear back, I think, from John McDonald's new Economics Committee. Uh, and I think that there's a huge amount of dissension between uh, centrist MPs um, and the hard left um, in the party over uh, very basics of, of, of economic policy. And I think that's going to be the next round of fighting. Is, is McDonald's Economics Committee the one that's got all kinds of people like sort of Varoufakis on it and Piketty exactly. on it? Exactly. I mean, did, did, did it have Lauer. David Bowie on it? Who knows? <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, it's... It, have they ever met? Are they ever going to meet? I think they are going to meet. I think it's uh, on my um, recollections. Like it's sort of four times a year. And are they like a state. closed Facebook group? Or I mean, it's the strangest uh, uh, idea. It, it is yeah. a strange idea. Yeah. I mean, they've got they've got some 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 big they've names. Got some serious names. Yeah, mm. um, I think Stiglitz is on it, and um, Simon Wren Lewis, the macroeconomist, at the. But are they anything other than just names on a list? Uh, I think they are going to meet, and, and in fact, some have been part of a steering committee, interestingly, okay. for the SNP, and they've met um, to kind of advise Holyrood uh, government. So mm. they have turned up in the past. Hugo, how much of the problem with the Labour Party you think is down to ideology, and how much of it is just down to competence? Well, I mean, that's the question. Look, I mean, I, the big question of whether or not the, the Corbyn project is working is comes down to what you think the Corbyn project is. Now, I mean, there are basically three views on this. And the first view is there's no project. They're a bunch of mad old men who carry their notes and play in plastic bags and none of it's ever going anywhere. The next answer is, well, what they're trying to do is, is, get, is turn Jeremy Corbyn into prime minister, into the prime minister, and obviously that's a project that's going terribly. <laughs> However, if you think the point of the Corbyn project is to move Labour to the left, is to take what, what was a centre-left party and make it a left-left party that will rise again under some as yet unsuspected leader in five to six after the next election, the next Labour Prime Minister being a figure who is to the left of Ed Miliband. That's bang on track. Uh, it, it's quite hard to see that it's bang on track because at the moment it looks like such a farce. But if, if, the, if the, plan, the game is long, I wouldn't quite even believe that this was Corbyn's project or McDonald's project, but it perhaps is what a lot of the people who voted for them think. That, look, this is a long-term thing. This is about rebuilding a, a true party of the British left, even more truly of the British left, Oliver, than you are. Indeed, which is which is um, which is hard, true, yeah, hard to conceive. In fact, I hate to um, make this um, taxonomy even more um, uh, complicated than you've done already. But there is a fourth option, which is that the new activists within the Labour Party and those members of Parliament who now make up this tiny core in the leadership, uh, McDonnell, Corbyn, Diane Abbott, Richard Bergen and one or two other younger MPs, their project is not really about Labour at all. The Labour Party is merely a contraption, a historical contraption, which they've happened to capture for their own purposes. And uh, I, I cannot conceive that they particularly... Uh, are worried about the electoral catastrophe that is about to engulf or will engulf the Labour Party in 2020, so long as they are, in their view, on the right side of history. Their policies, uh, Lucy mentioned economics, things like so-called people's quantitative easing, which is just uh, another way of saying um, the Bank of England should be compelled to underwrite deficit financing for any purpose whatsoever. These policies are a nonsense. They've got nothing to do with Labour's historic traditions, but it doesn't particularly matter to those who are in charge. It's all interesting stuff, and I'm, I have a feeling we're going to come back to uh, <laughs> Labour's, <laughs> Labour's future uh, in the future. Uh, L Lucy, um, let's move on, though, and talk about this broader issue. That, uh, in the past, we've talked about these groups on universities, mm -hmm. campuses who want to go around 
banning everything yeah. uh, and banning people from coming to speak. And now there are signs of pro free speech groups going around trying to ban the groups who want to ban things. Yes, and I think um, I just kind of wanted to get talking again about this subject because it really irks me. And um, I say that from position as a fresher uh, at Oxford University. I went along to a protest to protest against David Icke and Nick Griffin uh, speaking, and I regret it. And I think it, there, there's. You regret going? I regret I regret being part of that protest to sort of, you know, yeah. demand they weren't given a platform in the Oxford Union and, and, and weren't allowed to be there. Um, it was a foolish move. Um, and I think that there is this sort of small-c conservatism of youth about not allowing the light to shine in, not allowing people the chance to stand up and say things. Um, and this problem has clearly been growing. I think, you know, the Times originally broke the story of the Cecil Rhodes statue, a man, you know, held in high renown, whose many of his opinions now look from current mores and moral standards, um, very unsavoury in some regards, that he should be torn down to sanitise history, erase um, his contributions at college, what he what he did. I just find the whole thing very disturbing and, and I'm glad to see that um, a lot of students are now sort of standing up and, and refusing to walk around on eggshells and be told you're not allowed to say anything about you know trans issues, for example, because you don't know the the language the lingo um, you don't know the right way to speak about these things and people are being uh, being made to feel that they're they're not allowed to have opinions uh, let alone voice them um, on controversial issues and this goes even so far with sort of banning blurred lines from club nights you know the, the, yeah, the banning pop songs policing I mean, what gets played at disco seems quite extreme Hugo I know you've in the past have written about this yeah and had one view on it my my views are slightly conflicted and evolving I I too I'm alarmed by campus censoriousness. I think students are missing out on a vital part of the experience of, of being a student where you are exposed to lots and lots of challenging things that you have to think about how, what you think about them, you have to combat them, you have to debate them, all that kind of stuff. It certainly was very different when I was a student 20 years ago where you know it, we had, we had, it was a very free forum of discussion. However, I'm becoming increasingly aware that the world is not as it was when I went to I went to university in 1995. I think it was at the time we had I, I came from a world that was relatively controlled. Uh, we had a fairly homogenous media. Extreme views or even radical views, different views, were rare, were hard to get hold of. You went to university in part to be exposed to them and to debate them, and some of them were enlightening and ins- inspirational, and some of them were shocking, and you wished to fight them. That's simply not what the world is like now. Uh, people who go to university, uh, politically active people who go to university, may have been active on various forms of social media for five, six, seven years already. They are exposed to all kinds of things all the time. And so the reaction against that to want to, when for the first time in their lives they're in a situation where they can, to some degree, control their day-to-day environment, I no longer think it's so strange they're trying to put walls around that because they're not they're not really limiting the input they get because they're still getting this input from everywhere else. They're merely tidying their own bedrooms, if you see what I mean. And so and so, while I don't think that's necessarily healthy, I've become much more, I think, understanding as to why it's happening. I think there's a, a very dangerous line that you have blurred there, Hugo, between speech and... I wish you song. I really do. And the word environment. I've actually defended the free speech of Nick Griffin and David Irving and other right-wing extremists, um, people whose views are uh, morally reprehensible and factually, uh, well, not merely wrong, but in the case of Holocaust deniers, fraudulent. I'm an 
almost an absolutist on matters of free speech. The uh, line where I would draw it is clear and present danger, a direct threat mm -hmm. of incitement to violence. But otherwise, if you want to be protected from offensive views, don't go to university, go to a finishing school, um, <laughs> shut yourself up. But the idea that offensive speech is a violation of someone's rights is factually untrue. At the moment, authorities, whether government or universities, start to take account of people's mental states and whether they're uh, offended, um, the moment they do that, um, there's no limit to the exercise of arbitrary power. Um, and there has to be a clear line between speech and environment well, in, 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 in Hugo's well, word. Yes, but I mean, if you are... If you're a student, if you are going to be uh, be exposed to, as an irritating phrase in this context, if you are going to be able to hear, if you're going to come across the views of Jermaine Greer, for example, whether she speaks in your union or not, because there are many other routes by which that will now get to you. You will go online and someone will have posted it on your Facebook wall. Is this still a free speech issue? I, I don't know that I quite, quite agree with you that people are so exposed to such a plurality of, of views and opinions um, I think actually it's easier than ever now to curate your your Facebook your Twitter you follow people with the same opinions as you it's very can be very self-reinforcing in fact you know if, pe if people annoy you with different views you're likely to kind of unfollow them or or, or, or whatever so I'm not sure that there is there is more kind of input through technology in the model, modern world now than there was perhaps 20 years ago and and, 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 and even that issue aside Maybe I was a late developer myself, but, but I came to university at 18 without many very strong opinions on things. And I felt combined with that, that higher level of learning and rigorous thinking that, that sort of encouraged, it was the time at which I was faced with, with, with a lot of things I hadn't really thought about before and was forced to think about them. Mm -hmm. and, and if you sort of, as a sort of young teenager, maybe come, come across ideas and sort of written them off, you perhaps haven't engaged with um, with, with quite as much thought about, about things, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I basically agree with both of you. I think it's just it's important to, to think of the, the people we're talking about are very young. And one unacknowledged factor of being a teenager has always been powerlessness. And you get to university and for the first time you have a, a degree of power over your environment. For us, when we were at university, we would exercise that power by inviting in things we'd never he heard about before and fighting them. And I think what they are doing in, in, in defending their environments as they see it is a similar sort of first step sort of exercise of personal power. That's an explanation, Hugo. That's not a defence. That's fine, <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't go to university, so but uh, it didn't actually stop me forming strong opinions about uh, anything. But I th it, one of the interesting things, I think, beyond what's happening in campuses, the next week, I think it is, Parliament, uh, is due to be debating whether or not to ban Donald Trump from coming to mm. Britain because people don't like what he said about Muslims both in America mm. and in Britain. And that's, you know, fuelled by Twitter, Facebook. We don't like it, so let's ban it. That's the first first mm. first reaction to anything. Ridiculous. I, I yeah. defended among the, among the public figures of noxious views I've defended is Gert Wilders, the Dutch anti-Muslim demagogue who the Labour government, uh, the last Labour government, um, Jackie Smith, the Home Secretary in 2009, attempted to bar from this country. Uh, I think that was... Uh, and he appealed. And I think he was absolutely right to appeal. And I welcome the fact that um, the judges ruled in his favour. I, I take the same view with regard to the banning that took place, I forget whether it was successful or not, of George Galloway entering Canada a few years ago and Donald Trump coming here. It is 
an absolutely outrageous abuse of executive power or of judicial power to, uh, to rule in this way. Donald Trump seemed to be taking it seriously because he put out a statement threatening to withdraw £700 million worth of investment, which probably over-exaggerates the um, power of a Westminster Hall debate. I don't think he's, he <laughs> yes, probably he doesn't I need mean, to worry he, too much. He's, he's an absurd figure and he just makes himself look even more absurd with that sort of petulance. But the principle at stake is important. I, I agree with Boris Johnson on this, that rather than banning Donald Trump from the UK, we should force him to come to the UK. I think that would be a very good idea. Yeah. Well, on that, on that, on that note, we can all agree on it. Uh, so that, that brings us to the end. So uh, for more information about the subjects we've been discussing, you can head over to thetimes.co.uk. Uh, please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already, and you can sign up to the Red Box Morning Political Briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox forward slash sign up. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.